Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Last week, I encourage you to share the stories of individuals making a difference in your community. I hope you remember that. Well, guess what? I was absolutely overwhelmed with the outpouring of helpers, of heroes, and of those around you and your community making a positive difference. We have compiled a few of the stories, and together we have launched, get the drum roll ready, here we go, the Live Inspired Together movement. You can find this weekly show on my YouTube channel, John O'Leary, and also on our Facebook channel. It will serve as an awesome reminder of what is possible as it continues to grow in front of us. My friends, help me to continue to shine a bright light on the helpers, on the heroes, and on those making a difference. I'd love you to email me at together at johnolearyinspires.com. Again, I'm looking for examples of helpers and heroes, individuals in your marketplace, in your backyard, in your hospital, in your temple, in your church who are striving forward to make a difference. Email those examples to me at together at johnolearyinspires.com. And now, on to today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. This Sunday, it's April 19th, it marks the 25th anniversary of the deadliest domestic terrorist attack in our country's history. It is, of course, the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. Many of us were left searching for healing and hope after the violent attack, including Bud Welch. Bud is the father of one of the victims who lost her life in that explosion. Her name was Julie. Someone else who was left searching for healing and hope after that explosion was a gentleman named Bill McVeigh. Bill McVeigh is the father of the killer, Timothy McVeigh. Well, a few months ago, I was able to sit down with a woman who brought those two together and told the story of their most unlikely friendship that grew out of this tragedy. It's the story of tragedy. It's the story of an unlikely friendship. It's the story of redemption, and it is ultimately the story, my friends, of forgiveness and of life. Today's episode may at times be heavy, but I hope that you are able to see within this episode this immense sense that overcomes of hope, of freedom, of faith, of joy, of forgiveness, and of life. So my friends, I want you right now to grab your journals, grab a cup of coffee, and welcome to our episode, my newest friend, and now yours, her name is Jeannie Bishop. Jean Bishop, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks so much, John. Gina, I have the pleasure of interviewing astronauts and great authors, great thinkers, great leaders, great overcomers. I'm always excited to sit down and visit with them. And I can't remember an interview I have been more excited than this one. Oh, that's such an honor coming from you. Your story is so inspiring. 
Well, we, we could send love back and forth, back and forth until until the cows come home. But I mean that. I'm honored and humbled, and here we go. You, you have one of the most beautiful and then tragic and then redemptive stories I've ever heard. And now you're even able to share the stories of others who have similar type stories as you. So let's begin today by sharing a little bit of your story. Why don't we, why don't we start talking about where you grew up? So um, take us forward. I grew up in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'm the middle of three sisters. I have a younger sister, Nancy, and an older sister, Jennifer, and my mom, Joyce and Lee Bishop. And I lived in this brick house on Hillcrest Avenue. And it was this kind of idyllic childhood, a, a wonderful place to grow up. Talk about Jennifer. Jennifer is, uh, she's two years older than me and she owns a business that she's an entrepreneur and uh, graduate of Southern Methodist University, a religion major. And um, Nancy was five years younger than me and she was the the sunny, funny one. She was the one who was the, you know, the baby and adored and, you know, the comedian, the the kind of sunlight whenever she walked in the room and and she could basically get away with anything. (laughs) So you may not know this about me, Jean, but I grew up with four sisters. You, you are one of three. And what I remember maybe more than anything else from childhood is the fights over hair dryers, brushes, (laughs) clothes, was growing up a little chaotic, uh, one of three girls? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The, the, you borrowed my sweater without asking (laughs) argument. (laughs) The big stuff. Yep. Well, the big stuff continues for you. I'm going to fast forward a little bit only because we have so much to discuss today. Nancy marries a gentleman named Richard. Talk about Richard. Oh, Richard was the salt of the earth. He grew up in this wonderful Catholic family in the south side of Chicago with you know one of four brothers. He was the baby too. He was the youngest of four brothers. Big strapping guy, six foot three, 230 pounds, high school athlete, you know, did football, baseball, basketball, um, gentle giant. Um, Nancy was like the chatty Kathy. She was always, you know, talking and he was the, the strong, silent type. And mm. he would be in her aura and just kind of look at her with such love, like, oh, isn't she wonderful? <laughs> and so when they got married, you know, really young in their early 20s, we were all thrilled. And they wanted to start a family right away. I was a single lawyer, corporate lawyer at a big law firm at the time. And even though Nancy was the youngest of us three, she actually was the first who was going to be a mom. You go to dinner, and I believe the date is April 7th, 1990. It's about three years into their marriage. It's a Saturday night. The entire family is gathered. What were you celebrating? We were celebrating the joyful news that Nancy was three months pregnant. And for my parents, this is their first grandchild. For me and Jennifer, this would have been our first little niece or nephew. So we were all just over the moon and we all hugged goodbye that night. It was the night before Palm Sunday. Um, And I said to Nancy, I'll see you tomorrow because I was going to see her after church. And I never say that anymore to anyone because it seems to me now almost like this foreboding of doom. So actually, as I was reading your first book, I wrote down those words, I'll see you tomorrow. And I was going to ask you uh, specifically about that because those are the last words you ever say to your sister. The following day is Palm Sunday. It's April, 1990. You're singing in choir and you feel a hand on your arm. Take us forward from that. It was the church secretary and she said, you have a phone call. And I was so confused. I thought, well, who would be calling me at church? And so I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm singing right now. Can, can you take a message? 
And she said, no, you need to come with me. And I knew something was wrong and, and my heart was just pounding. And I thought at first, maybe it was my father. He was in his seventies, you know, maybe he had a heart attack or something. And so when I got to her office and picked up the phone and it was my father, my mind was just really, and I was so unprepared for the words he said. He said, Nancy and Richard have been killed. These are words I can't even imagine hearing about a loved one and a sister and a brother-in-law of man you felt as a brother expecting their baby. When you hear them on Palm Sunday, moments after singing uh, Amazing Grace in the Choir Loft, what's your very first thought? My very first thought was, this this can't be true. And I thought at first it was some horrible accident. I pictured them driving on the Kennedy Expressway in Chicago in some semi-trailer, you know, smashing into them or something. And so when my father said, somebody killed them, to know that someone had deliberately taken their lives was just so shocking because they were such good and innocent people. They had no enemies. They had everything to live for. There was no reason that someone should just assassinate them. You begin to learn about that assassination. Would you, without giving all the details away, talk about what you learned about how they, about how they died? I went to the Winnetka police station. Winnetka is the town where they were killed. And it was one of the safest, most affluent communities in the country at, in, at the time. There hadn't been a murder, an unsolved murder in more than a century before they were killed. There was only one murder before then. Um, two years earlier, it was a kind of a mini version of the Newtown, Connecticut massacre. Uh, a deranged woman burst into an elementary school in the town and shot um, six children and one of them perished. Uh, and then, But then she took her own life. So it was instantly, the crime was solved. So it was really the only unsolved murder. And, you know, it, it was just unimaginable that, that someone could have done that and to learn that, you know, they had died from gunshots, that someone could actually point a gun at my beautiful sister, see the light in her eyes and snuff out that light was just, just brought me to the darkest place imaginable. I read and then wept as I read it about how they were murdered and how your brother-in-law died right away. But after the killer walked out of this, this townhome of theirs, that your sister had a few more minutes alive before she also passed away. Would you, would you share with our listeners uh, what she did in that time? She tried to call for help, and it's hard to imagine because we can't imagine life now without such a thing as a cell phone. But this was 1990, and there, there was not anything, you know, like a cell phone. And so she had no way to call for help other than to try to make a noise. She was too weak to to move very far. So she banged on this metal shelf with a tool down in the basement, hoping that someone would hear the noise and, and come and help them. And I think at some point she must have realized that no help was coming and that she was dying. And so she dragged herself by her elbows over to where Richard's body was. And you can see these marks and scrapes on her elbows and a trail of blood where her body dragged across the floor. But before she died, she dipped her finger in her own blood and wrote the shape of a heart and the letter U on the concrete floor next to him, next to her husband, love you, which is exactly how she used to sign her cards and letters to him. When you, because I'm hearing this story and I don't know your sister, I only know her through your words, but I'm emotional hearing this. When you say this and you've had 
three decades to reflect on it. When, when, when you share that story, what emotions stir up within you? First of all, that my biggest fear before I learned that she had done that was that her last moments on this earth were spent in horror and terror and pain and heartbreak to know that her husband was dead and her dream of going old with him and raising a family died with him. And that the baby inside her was dying, just ripped apart by the bullets that had been fired into her abdomen inside by the killer. And instead to know that her last thoughts was, were of love, mm. that her last word on the, her life, on this beautiful world she was leaving and loved so much, was love. And when my mom finds out about this, she burst into tears and said, it's true, isn't it? Love is stronger than death. Mm. This murder goes unsolved for months. During that painful purgatory that you, you're in, what keeps you going? Like, how do you get out of bed and take the next step, take the next breath, say the next word, put, put on a blouse and go back to work? How, how do you begin moving back into normalcy when it will never be normal again? Boy, that's just it, isn't it? I mean, for the first week, I didn't eat, I didn't sleep. I finally went to the pastor of my church. I, I go to this big Presbyterian church in downtown Chicago, and the pastor at the time, John Buchanan, said, you're gripping on to this with both hands. And he, he kind of clenched both fists and put them in towards his chest. And he said, you have to open your hands and hold this up to God and say, this is too much for me. It is too heavy for me to bear. I cannot wait. I can't you know bear up under it. Take this. Do something with it. Redeem it. And I just had to walk forward every day, like you said, step by step, walking in the dark, just trusting that God would fulfill that promise to do something with it. I had no idea where that would lead me, no idea that it would actually lead me to the killer himself. When you find out from the Winnetka police that they have determined who the killer is, and there's, of course, an incredible story behind that, but you find out who this killer is and they've arrested this person, um, what, what goes through your mind? I was shocked. I'm in my apartment in Chicago. I'd just gotten home from work, and I get a call from a reporter from the CBS news station here in the city asking me for my reaction to the arrest and my sister's murder. And I said, what arrest? And he said, there's a teenager in custody in the Winnetka police station. This teenage boy, 16 years old when he did it. He lived a few blocks away from her. He go. He went to the same high school where my son right now is mm. attending at the very same age. My 16-year-old son, Stephen, is a sophomore there at the same big public high school in this, this you know, safe, affluent town of Winnetka, Illinois. I was absolutely shocked. As you learn more about the killer, 16-year-old boy named David Bureau. This is a family who knew your family. This is a boy whose smiling face was on your refrigerator through the Christmas cards that mom and dad would send out. Yeah. How do you make, how, how do you begin to make sense out of this? Yeah, it was such a strange coincidence when I found out who it was, that he was the son of Nick and Joan Bureau, who were friends of my parents from Oklahoma City, where we grew up by a coincidence. They had both worked for Wilson Foods, when they were there, my dad was the vice president and general counsel, and Mr. Bureau worked in the kind of the 
PR, I think. And so they, they knew each other. They were coworkers and friends, and they sent Christmas cards every year with the mother and father and David Bureau and his brother and sister. And I remember this pictures of this smiling little boy and reconciling that with someone who could take a three fifty seven Magnum revolver and thirty eight caliber bullets and fire them into the bodies of my beloved family members and kill them was was just unimaginable. What do you remember about the first time you saw him in court? Oh, I remember he walked out from the lockup, through the door into the well of the court, skinny kid, defiant expression on his face, kind of sauntering out, kind of like, I'm the master of the universe, and I'm smarter than all of you, and I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna lie my way out of this. Watch me. He tried unsuccessfully. What was your hope during that trial? I just looked at the jurors. I, I sat there in that courtroom begging them silently with my eyes, like, listen, see the truth, find him guilty. Um, he took the stand and he tried to blame it on someone else. He told this story that a friend of his had come and knocked on his door and said, here, keep this gun. I just killed two people with it. And so when the prosecutor had a chance to cross-examine him, he basically took that story apart, you know, that it defied common sense. I mean, if somebody kills a gun and wants someone wants to get rid of the gun, you just go a couple of blocks to Lake Michigan and toss it off the pier. Mm. And that's the end of the gun connecting you to the crime. Um, he had the glass cutter used to break into the townhouse they were living in. He had handcuffs like the ones used on my brother-in-law. He had a whole trophy notebook he kept about the killing and a poem he'd written saying, I am Cain. I'm the one who kills like mm. Cain and Abel in the mm -hmm. Bible. Um, we learned that he had gone to their funeral. He bragged about the killing to several friends. And finally this one friend turned him in. I read that you forgave him, but it wasn't a forgiveness of him as much as you were washing your hands of the filth that he was. Right. I forgave, you know, for God and for Nancy and for me, because the God part, we know if we call ourselves Christian, Jesus said, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He said that, you know, when someone asked him, like, how many times do I have to forgive this brother of mine that keeps, you know, offending and is seven times enough? And then can I say, okay, that's it. I'm yeah. done. I'm through with you. And Jesus said, you know, you know you forgive 70 times 7. In other words, you're never through. You never stop. You keep forgiving. And so I knew I had to do that. And I forgave for Nancy because I knew that her memorial couldn't be hatred and vengeance. It had to be something life-giving and life-saving. And then I forgave for me because of this you know, saying that I love that um, – Hating someone else is like drinking poison and mm. expecting the other person to die. And so I thought, I, you know, I forgive him, but it's not for him. It's not meant to include him in any way. It's, it's, it's to free myself from the burden of hating him. 22 years after this begins, you decide to take it a step farther. And after having no contact with him, after no conversations back and forth, no letters. You decide to take a radical uh, next first step. Talk about the letter that you sent the killer. Yeah, I 
I was talking with someone because there was a change in the law. He had been sentenced to life without parole, meaning you die in prison. There's no parole hearing or second look at you ever. And then the law changed for juveniles so that there was a possibility that he could be resentenced either to another life sentence or to something less than life. And by then I had kind of changed my mind about the whole idea of life without parole for someone who's a child when they committed the crime. But I was saying to this friend, you know, I I don't know how I feel about him getting out. I mean, he's still remorseless. And this friend looked at me and said, how do you know that? Mm. If you don't know that, you've never even spoken to him. And it was like such a shock because I thought he's right. I've gone through all these years assuming that he's remorseless, assuming that he's not rehabilitated, not sorry, since he's never reached out to me. And I thought, but I don't know. So I, I've never, I forgave him and I never told him that was wrong. So I wrote him this letter, a very short letter saying that, that I've waited all these years for you to apologize to me and my family. And I'm going to go first. I'm sorry that I didn't tell you long ago that I have forgiven you. And if you want me to come see you, I will. Mm. Gene, do you remember the day that you get home and there's a letter waiting for you with his name and the prison address on it? Yeah, actually, it wasn't at home. It was in my office. And I'm a public defender by this time. I left the corporate job after Nancy was killed because I thought I need to do something deeply meaningful that will be helpful to the world and not just to kind of make money. And so I became a public defender. It's a job I still do. And we get letters from prisoners all the time. Mm. So when I got this letter from Pontiac Prison, at first, you know, on the envelope, I, I didn't think anything of it. Then I look up in the left-hand corner, and it has his name at the top, Bureau. He had written me back. And I couldn't open the letter for two days. I just It just sat on my desk. I thought, what if it's bad? I don't know if I can, my heart can take this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, if it's some angry denunciation or some smarmy, ingratiating, manipulative thing, or if it's, you know, I I, I don't know. But finally, a friend opened it and read it for me first and just said, it's good. Okay, I'm going to read this to you and read it out word for word so that I was hearing it in the voice of someone that I knew. And it just said, I've waited so long to tell you this. I don't want to make you wait anymore. I am guilty. I did kill your sister and her husband. And I'm so sorry. If I could take it back, I would. And then in the next 15 pages, front and back of this letter, he explains his whole journey, his change of heart about trying to get away with the crime, denying it, then feeling great shame about it, feeling really a great deal of empathy for my family and how mystified and heartbroken we must have been about why he had done this and just his his wish that there was some way he could atone for it. When you get a letter like that and then you get to the end of it and then you read it again and then you read it again, what do you do with it? I mean, this is a life-changing moment. It's an inflection point. So what, what do you do when you get a letter from a killer like that? Yeah, well, the first thing I did was I cried. I mean, I'm getting choked up now thinking about it because the thing is we hear about restorative justice that, you know, if a teenager spray paints your garage with your graffiti, instead of sending him to jail, we have him come clean the garage, repaint it, do some community service, sit down and have some one-on-one counseling. But when you take the life of someone you know, the loved one of someone else, you can't paint the garage and fix it. 
you can never bring that person back. The most you can do is grasp the enormity of what you took. And knowing that he had done that and was sorry was the only justice and the best justice he could have given me. When did you decide to take it from the pen pal relationship back and forth letters to actually visiting him in Pontiac? When I had written to him, I said, if you want me to come see you, I will. And he said, yes, do come and see me. And so I did. I did. Uh, A month or so later, I made this two and a half hour drive down I-55 to this, you know, pretty bleak Mm -hmm. prison in this small town, Pontiac, Illinois. And when I first went in, I, I write about this at the beginning of a book. I've written about this change of heart. The first thing you're supposed to do when you sign in is to write your car, you know, license plate and your address and your name and other information about yourself. And then the last thing you're supposed to write, the last box you fill in is relationship to offender. Wow. And I just froze. My pen's hanging in the air and I'm thinking, I don't know what to say. I mean, murder, murder, victim's family member. So I look at what other people have written who came ahead of me. And it said, uncle, girlfriend, you know, pastor, whatever, friend. Um, And I thought, well, I'm not his friend. And I'm not his family. So I just wrote the word visitor. And when the guard saw that, he kind of scowled and and didn't like that. And he said, are you family? And I said, no. So he wrote in the word friend. Mm. But now that word is true. I am his friend. And now those guards know who I am and why I'm there. And they've come to me asking me about this. And I give my testimony of forgiveness. Mm. And the other prisoners have figured out who I am. And some of them have written to me saying, I wish that someday I could apologize to my victim's family for what I did and be forgiven. There's such hunger for that. Last week, I had an opportunity of speaking with some prisoners. And uh, these are guys who are going to be in jail for the rest of their lives. And the person who brought me in said, John, you may refer to them as offenders or people currently engaged with the justice system. Those are the two terminologies you may use with our our visitors today. Mm. And neither worked for me. And so I referred to them throughout our entire couple-hour visit as my friends, my friends. And so mm. I was able to look at 240 guys all wearing the exact same outfit, all spending the rest of their lives in, in this space as my friends. But mm. Gene, I, I had no personal relationship with these guys and none of them had ever taken anything personal from me what is it like to go from a woman whose sister and brother have been robbed from her by a murderer into a relationship where you can refer to someone as a friend you impart to them that because of them these wonderful people are no longer in the world and all they could have done all the good they could have done can no longer be done by them. And now that obligation is passed to him to do every bit of good that he can do in this world, even if he remains in prison the rest of his life, wherever he is, that that's my hope and expectation for him. This idea of restorative justice and forgiveness runs deep in your veins, in your heart, in your family, in your in your life. It's also connected you to the project that you're currently working on. You have a book that comes out next week. And it also ties back to growing up in Oklahoma, 
five years, almost to the date that you lost your sister, there was an event that changed the lives of everybody in Oklahoma City, everybody around Oklahoma, everybody around the United States, and I think beyond. Talk about April 19, 1995. So it was a beautiful, sunny day, one of those just gorgeous spring days in Oklahoma where you you drive to work with the windows rolled down and, and the radio on and your shirt sleeves. And People had just gotten out of the mayor's prayer breakfast. The annual prayer breakfast was just getting out 8.30 in the morning, and people were heading to their downtown offices. And there's a nine-story glass front building down in the heart of the city called the Murrah Federal Building, and it housed agencies like the Federal Credit Union and the uh, ATF and uh, some Homeland Security and on the first floor is the Social Security Administration. On the second floor is a daycare where a lot of the employees had their children. There were 21 children in the daycare that day. And one of the people who went into that building to go to work on the first floor was a 23-year-old girl named Julie Marie Welch, the only daughter of my friend Bud Welch. I met him through my work against against killing, against more bloodshed. Um, and I learned his story, but he grew up in Oklahoma on a dairy farm and Julie grew up in Oklahoma, but she had a passion for languages. She spoke Spanish and she was an interpreter in the federal building. And when she went in that day, she was called to the front to see a Spanish speaking client who needed her accompanied by his pastor, both of them fathers of five. One had a child that was only 10 days old. And an angry young white man named Timothy McVeigh, 26 years old, pulled a rider truck up next to that building. It was filled with a bomb that he had constructed out of ammonium nitrate. And he lit two fuses and walked into an alley and then ran. And the bomb went off at 9.02 a.m. And it killed 168 people, including almost all the children in the daycare and four more children that were in other parts of the building, including the office where Julie worked. And she died there on that first floor. The three coworkers that she had just been speaking with in the back all survived. They were rescued 45 minutes later. But 168 people died. And if you count the three pregnant women who were carrying babies that were so far along, they had already been named, 171 people died. Mm. Um, still the deadliest act of terrorism, domestic terrorism in this country, even after places like Las Vegas and Newtown and El Paso and Tree of Life and Mother Emanuel. This is the deadliest act. It had been at the time the deadliest strike on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor. You meet Bud, and I think I want to get into his story by first introducing one of the great champions that you share in, in your book. Talk about Sister Roz. So Sister Roz is this amazing Catholic nun who lives and works outside of Buffalo, New York. And her day job is counseling inmates at Attica Prison, which is this notorious, sometimes violent place. Mm -hmm. At night, she works at a halfway house that's a place where returning citizens coming from prison can stay until they get on their feet out in society, a place so dangerous that one of her coworkers, a fellow nun, was murdered by one of the guys they were trying to help a few years ago. So she is tiny but tough. <laughs> and she put together these two fathers 
Bud Welch, the father of Julie Marie, who died in the bombing, and Bill McVeigh, the father of Timothy McVeigh, who set off that bomb. Bill McVeigh lives outside of Buffalo also in a small town named Pendleton. He's lived there his entire life, except for the two years he did serving his country in the Army during the Vietnam War. He's never lived outside this five-mile radius of Pendleton and, and this nearby little town, Lockport, New York. And Sister Roz drove Bud out to meet Bill on this amazing encounter between these two men who should have been enemies and instead became lifelong friends. How did you hear about this story? I heard about it from Bud Welch, who went through a transformation like mine. I mean, I started out not caring if David Bureau lived or died. I I just left him up to God. And when Timothy McVeigh was first arrested and Bud Welch saw him being brought out of the Noble County Jail in Perry, Oklahoma, in his orange jumpsuit being transferred into federal custody, he wished a sniper would take him out right there. I mean, the, the, a trial and the death penalty wasn't swift enough for him. That's how angry and full of hate he was. And he was drinking every night, and he was chain-smoking four packs of cigarettes a day, and his gas station customers were saying, God, you're killing yourself with this. And he said, hey, this, the sooner I die, the sooner I get to heaven and see my daughter, Julie. Mm. But over time, he started realizing that all this hate he was harboring was not healing him. And he started looking into, you know, why Timothy McVeigh had done this and found that it was just retaliation and revenge. And he saw the death penalty clearly as just more retaliation, revenge, more bloodshed, and that it would never stop. This cycle of hate and killing would never stop. And so he became one of the foremost spokesmen against the death penalty, against killing Timothy McVeigh. And he wanted to go and say to Bill McVeigh when he went to visit him, Tim was under a sentence of death. It hadn't been carried out yet. But Bill, you know, heard from the father of one of his son's victims, I don't want your son to die. I don't blame you for what he did. I'll do everything I can to try to prevent his execution. And and Bud was true to his word. The day of the execution in Terre Haute, Indiana, Bud stood there from 6 in the morning till almost midnight that night, speaking to press all around the world, saying, this will not heal me. This will not bring my daughter back. This will do nothing but break the hearts of Bill McVeigh and Tim's two sisters who loved him. On page 15 of your new book, and I highlighted a lot of it, but this I highlighted and circled. That, that always means uh, pay attention, O'Leary. Here's, here's what you've wrote, and I'd like you to explain what it means. Vengeance beget vengeance. Hate breeds more hate. Reconciliation is altogether different. It changes us and changes the world one human heart at a time. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that one of the things that happened when McVeigh was executed is that people were asked, some of the victims' families who viewed the execution either via closed circuit TV or live were asked was, do you feel better now? And they all said no. And the two things they said was, one, that he'd never said he was sorry, and two, that he hadn't suffered enough. And they realized that they had all this hate still and it had nowhere to go. Mm. Now it had no more object. He was gone, and yet they didn't feel better. They didn't feel healed in, in any way. And what I learned from befriending the person who killed my sister, from having 
him learn about Nancy and Richard and who they were through me. This incredible healing because he said to me once on a visit, the more I get to know them and who they were through you, the worse I feel about what I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is so meaningful to me because now they're no longer these strangers right. that had no name to him and meant nothing to him. Now he sees the light that he put out in this world when he took their lives. And I, I keep thinking, you know, one of the things that family members said about why they weren't satisfied was that, you know, Tim McVeigh had never said he was sorry and they wanted to hear that apology. And I thought, well, we killed him before he had a chance to be sorry, to develop that remorse. And and Bud calls that a hole in his heart, that he he wanted to say those words of forgiveness and he wanted to hear that apology from, from McVeigh. And that, that chance is gone forever. I'm going to share with you one of the final words that Timothy McVeigh shared. It's a quote that you included in your book. It breaks my heart to have typed this onto my notes and now to share it with you live. But I'd like you to respond because you put it in there for us to read and for us to learn from. So here are the words of Timothy McVeigh. He's being interviewed on this death penalty coming, okay? Death penalty is an oxymoron was the question, yes or no. And he says, death is not a penalty. These are from Timothy McVeigh. Death is not a penalty. It is an escape. They won. They didn't win. In the crudest terms, 168 to one. Right. Meaning he killed 168 people, including these precious children in the daycare. And in the babies and the wombs of these three pregnant women who worked there. And we killed one person, him. So if it's supposed to be an eye for an eye, by our own math, he wins. We will never be even. And so this idea of getting even as a way of responding to evil doesn't work. That the only thing more powerful than evil, more powerful than anything on earth is love. Mm. And we're never going to hate and kill our way out of evil. We're only going to defeat it with the amazing, forgiving, reconciling love of God. You write about the survivor tree, and I've I've been to Oklahoma City many times, uh, been moved in the presence of it, but not did not understand the full story behind the survivor tree. Would you explain to our listeners what the survivor tree is? Oh, I love this story. So... Julie parked her car in the employee parking lot every day when she went to work. And there's one scrubby tree in this lot. And it's an elm tree that was just sticking out of the asphalt. And it was tilting to one side because of these prevailing winds that were blowing it to the side. And it was shot through with mistletoe because a lot of people don't know this, but the mistletoe is the state plant of Oklahoma. It grows everywhere. It's a parasite. And it, it was, you know, shot through with the mistletoe. It was just a mess. Mm. But Julie, it's the only tree in that lot, and so it casts some shade. And if you park your car in Oklahoma City in the summertime and get in your car a little bit later, it's like an oven. So she always tried to snag the spot under that tree. That's where she'd always park. And so when they were tearing down the remains of the building, imploding the building and removing the rubble, Bud was worried that they would also cut down this tree. And he thought, this tree survived. It survived this bombing. I don't want it to die. I want it to live. So they brought him this amazing 
state forester named Mark Bays who loved that tree like a dad, you know, <laughs> loves a toddler, just watching over it and put in this whole irrigation system and new soil, and it's turned into this tree that is beautiful and lush. And every year at the anniversary on April 19th, they give away saplings that are grown from the seeds of this tree wow. so that even if that tree falls a thousand years from now, There'll be all these descendants of that tree all over the country and the world. And I think that the love that Bud has for Julie is represented by that tree. He sees that as a symbol of her, this living symbol. And I love that, the idea that that the the love we have for those even that are gone can be something that, that still lives on in this world and transforms it. You shared this intimate story about Bud and Bill. I believe they are at Bill's home in Florida. They're in the garden area. And Bud, this is the the father of Julie who loses her life at the hands of the explosion of Timothy McVeigh. In other words, at the hands of the son, right? So right. Uh, he asked his new friend, do you cry? Do you weep? What was What was his response? What was Bill's response? Actually, the, it, it's, it's actually Bill's daughter that lives in Florida. Bill still lives in the same house that he shared with Tim McVeigh This uh, in Pendleton, New York. This oh, right. small house, but a very, very big backyard and huge garden, like the, half the size of a hockey rink. And that's where he and Bud walked because they both grew up on farms. It's one of the many, many things they have in common, along with growing up in big Irish Catholic families and, you know, working men never got past high school. And Bill McVeigh just worked in a plant um, for the GM parts overnight, working the furnace for almost 40 years. But yeah, Bill Bill's a very stoic man. And he said to Bud, you know, can, Bud, can you cry? He said, I, I have so much to cry about and I just can't. But it was at that kitchen table where they sat later on and talked that finally Bill McVeigh did cry. And you know when it happened? It happened when Bud Welch looked up and saw a picture of a young, smiling young man on the wall. It was the graduation photo of Tim McVeigh. And he said to Bill, God, what a good-looking kid. And that's when this tear started falling down Bill's face. Because this person that should have hated his son was acknowledging his humanity. This is his child, his blood, his baby. And they had this bond of fathers, this unbreakable bond, because Bud knew that he had lost his only daughter, and he knew that soon Bill was going to lose his only son. When people read your books, plural, when they go back to their regular lives, their marriages, their singleness, their addictions, their dreams, their hopes, their goals, their disappointments, their despair— how do you hope they might be a little bit different or better because of what they read within your story? That there is hope, that there is light, that you don't have to be mired in the darkness. You don't have to be pinned under this rock of defeat, of hate, of anger, of disappointment, that God wants to lift you out of that into a life of freedom and joy. Gene, for those who are locked behind bars of uh, of difficulty, of regret, of anger, of whatever it might be, but we all have these jail cells that we live in from time to time, and they are saying to you right now, there's no way for me to forgive. What, what encouragement might you give them? Oh, 
I just to say I was right there with you. I remember before I forgave and reached out to David Bureau, the person who killed my sister, I listened to this woman talk. Her name is Marietta Yeager, and she was the mom of several kids, and her youngest seven-year-old Susie was on a camping trip with her, and she hugged her and kissed her goodnight, tucked her into her little sleeping bag with her stuffed animals, and the next morning there was a jagged gash in the tent where Susie had been, and her sleeping bag was empty, and her toys were scattered on the ground, and she was gone. And it was clear that something terrible had happened, that she had been abducted. And they found out later that, in fact, she was raped, murdered, dismembered, scattered. And Marietta talked about praying for the good of this person who had done this. And I remember shaking my head and folding my arms over my chest and saying, you are on a plane higher than I can attain. I cannot ever do that. That would be impossible for me. Forgive this guy? Pray for his good? No. No. And then now look at me. You know, God is bigger than our hearts. God is bigger than our limitations, than the the burdens we carry. It's a beautiful story, and I I can't encourage people enough to to check out your books. Where can we find them? Um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, hopefully some of your favorite bookstores. <laughs> My publisher is Zondervan, wonderful Christian publishers and uh, who have been so supportive from the very beginning of just getting this story and how special the story of these two men, these two fathers are. You know, in every episode, Jane, we have the honor of not only interviewing people that I look up to, and I'm looking up to one today, but I also have the opportunity of tying them all together through seven questions. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. So I'd like to guide you through these seven questions. And question number one, and I know you read and write a lot, so this one ought to be easy for you. What is the best book you have ever read? Oh, wow, that's so tough. That's like asking your favorite song or your favorite child. I'm such a book lover. I think I only have my, you know, my my latest favorite book, um, gosh, that is really, that's so hard. Maybe one that during a season of your life, whether it's yesterday or back in 1990 or somewhere in between, it just stirred you. So what what is that one book that you look back on as just, whew, this showed up right on time? I think it's Henry Nowen. Wow. Um, the priest uh, who had a fancy job and awards and everything and kind of left it all to work at a, a place called L'Arche that helped people with um, disabilities. And he wrote a, a lot of books. And one of the books he wrote was about the prodigal son and about forgiveness. And I love that story that Jesus tells in the Bible, that parable of a God who loves us so much that he, when he sees us from a distance before we've even had a chance to kneel before him and make our apology, he runs to us. Mm. He folds us in his arms and tells us how much he loves us and welcomes us home. That's the image I had, the vision I had for David Bureau. Mm. So I have four kids and the third is named Henry after a great author and a great man named Henry Nowen. So I, I like oh, you, wow. love Henry wow. Nowen. And in my, author, in my office here in St. Louis, Missouri, there is a large oil painting of Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son. So uh, 
I love that book and I love what that picture and that story yes, challenged us to with, do. Yeah, with the father's tender yeah. hands laid on the shoulders of his child and you can see the child kind of leaning. It yeah. reminds me of that psalm where you know, the, the the psalmist says that my soul is like a, my, a wee child in, uh, on its mother's lap, right? Where you just kind of rest and breathe, like here I am, where mm. I belong, where I'm loved and comforted. That's awesome. All right, we're going to ask number two, or we could spend another hour just talking about the return of the prodigal <laughs> but, son. We'll come back to that one. What is one positive yes. characteristic, though, Gene? One positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little girl that you wish you exhibited as brightly today? I could see stories and write poems and in my head and and make up songs and I'd I'd see magic walking through a forest. I think, you know, I before I went to law school, I, I went to I was a journalism major undergrad at Northwestern. And I think sometimes I I see the word kind of reporting facts. And, and so I, I wish I had more of that. What a lovely question. Hmm. If your home caught fire and all living things, that's children, family, pets, everybody's out. You have an opportunity, though, to run in safely and grab one item. What is the one item that you would come running back out with? Nancy's cross. Now you're going to make me cry again. <laughs> um, she had this beautiful gold cross on a single gold chain and she was wearing it when she died. And it is this thing that lay against her heart as it stopped beating. And I would run and, and, and get that. What does that cross mean to you today? It means that the question I asked in my agony in the days after her murder which is, God, where were you? Where were you? When she was praying and, beg, you know, that her husband not be killed, that her baby not be killed, that, that she live, where were you when that gun went off and ended her dream of being a mom? All she wanted was to hold that baby in her arms. Where were you? And that cross answers that question for me. God was right there. God was right there in her, her last moments, weeping, holding her, giving her the serenity in which she could dip her finger in her own blood and draw an image of love. That's so awesome. If if you're listening right now and you're not moved, uh, I encourage you to go back to the beginning, listen again. And if you're still not moved, check your heart rate. Just make sure that you are alive your story and the way you share it and your sister's love and your understanding of gratitude and faith is so riveting and life-giving. So I, I just appreciate you being so honest with us during this conversation. And question number four is if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? I wish so much that I had spent more time talking to my grandfathers. One grandfather is almost a mirror image of Bill McVeigh. He, Bill McVeigh worked at a at an auto parts plant for 40 years My and grew up on a farm. My grandfather, Bishop, grew up on a farm and worked at a caterpillar plant in Peoria, Illinois for 40 years. And he had so much wisdom. And my other grandfather, 
also grew up on a farm. He went on to become a lawyer and a, a, the head prosecutor for Champaign County, Illinois. And he was a poet and an architect and a writer. And they had so much wisdom and I was just too little to to know it. I wish I had them both back. I have so many questions I would ask them. You may not have known them well, but I'm convinced they passed their DNA and their wisdom on to their granddaughter. Uh, I hope so. What is, what is the best advice you've ever received? Wow, what another great question. I'm trying to capture it exactly in words. Um, there's this wonderful pastor I write about in, in my first book, John Boyle, mm-hmm. who was a 19-year-old army sergeant during World War II when his unit was one of the two that liberated the concentration camp at Dachau. And he came home and became a Presbyterian minister and was the co-founder of a counseling center at my church to help people who are victims of abuse and abandonment and, you know, all kinds of terrible things that that happen to, to you in life and people need, you know, someone to kind of help them navigate those shoals, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, talking to him was always this deep well of wisdom. And I remember once you know, you stand in these moments where you, there's something you know you you want to do, and yet the kind of fear kind of holds you back. And he he sent this note to me once in a meeting, and it said, "What are you waiting for?" And I thought that is such good advice, right? I waited so long to forgive David Bureau. Why did I wait so long? I waited so long to go from you know the the kind of dry existence of being a corporate lawyer to the rich, you know, existence of being a a public servant, a public Mm. defender. Um, All these things, you know, when we wait so long to forgive someone who's wronged us to, to explore that, that thing that you're feeling called to do. That's awesome. What are you waiting for? I think we can get that one tattooed somewhere on our body and put it on the back of our <laughs> right. b- bumper stickers yeah, as well. Yeah, you people out there, you know what I'm talking about. What are you waiting for? What What would you tell your 20-year-old self? If you can kind of give her some wisdom right now, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Listen to that still small voice of God before it has to become a megaphone. <laughs> I mean, I knew that I did not belong in a place where the ultimate goal was, you know, making money and getting ahead, that it, it just, uh, there was alarm bells going off in my head going, I don't belong here. This isn't right. I'm an imposter, you know, this, and yet I, I waited so long out of kind of fear and pride, just fear of like, how will I, you know, survive on the salary that a public defender makes and, you know, just, just to listen when when you hear that voice of God calling, pay attention and 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 follow. Jean Bishop, it has been said that all great sisters and mothers and public defenders and friends and colleagues and writers and speakers can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Oh, I would love for it to read and the message that if I could distill the 26 years of amazing preaching that I heard from John Buchanan, the pastor of my church I was talking about, who told me years ago to lift up 
this tragedy and, and ask God to redeem it. If you could sum up his whole message, all those years I sat in the, that choir loft and, and listened, it's this, give your life away. Give your life away. I have so found it in the, whenever, you know, that somebody asks me, can you do this? Can you work on this? You say, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and find such joy, such richness, so many amazing people and, you know, things that you learn and places you go. I'm, I'm so grateful for his ministry and for that message. Jean Bishop, I want to thank you for taking tragedy, redeeming it, sharing it, and being part of our Live Inspired family. Oh, John, what a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Give your life away, my friends. It's great advice from a great lady. And maybe the other question we should be asking ourselves right now is, so what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? My friends, that is Jane Bishop. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live Inspired.